Well, it's great to see you all this morning, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, some more than others, but that's okay. I was uh, in Rome a couple of years ago uh, leading a tour there and was uh, sort of fascinated to realize that it had been, at least in uh, the year 2020, it it was 20 years ago that the movie Gladiator came out, of course, which centers around the climaxes there in the Colosseum in Rome. And one of the things that um, I, I recently rewatched the movie and just was amazed just the, the, the scale and how we are attracted to athletes. I mean, this is not a new thing. Athletes in action has been something going on for uh, thousands of years. Our passion to watch, uh, who was it that said that uh, watching a, a pro football game is like uh, you've got you know a few men on the field who are desperately needing rest watched by thousands and thousands of people desperately needing exercise. (laughs) And I think, oh yes, I heard that illustration from a preacher talking about uh, uh, wanting volunteers. (laughs) And the the connection there is obvious. But one of the things that was interesting about gladiators is that gladiators would not only, you know, come out and fight and look real cool, but but they would also walk around sort of with uh, sandwich boards and do advertising. And uh, Owen made me think of that when he was talking about advertising. It was one of the great, you know, you go to places that uh, for athletes and the advertisers show up as well because ads are a major part of our lives. We are so inundated with advertising. In fact, it is amazing how much advertising we are inundated with. Sometimes it even shows up in church. Um, I have seen um, or heard about a, a guy that in a prayer meeting said, uh, he, he said something like, uh, you know, everyone's got their head bowed and, and now it's his turn to pray. He says, Lord, I've, uh, I've got this 95 Chevy pickup that I'll let go for $1,500. <laughs> Amen. But you know, in church though, we present the gospel in terms and in advertising tactics because that's how our heart is wired. Our heart is wired to respond to a need that we that we perceive that we have. And of course, the gospel is the ultimate good news in the context of bad news. If it wasn't for the bad news, there'd be no good news, or at least that we wouldn't care about it. But until we're convinced of the bad news, that is that God's standard for heaven is his holiness, his character, and then we realize the bad news is that we've all fallen short of God's character and are thus justly condemned by him, then we have no need for the good news until we realize that bad news, that there is nothing we can do. There is no good work that we can do that gets us to heaven because along with our good works, we've got our sin and our sin is enough to disqualify us from the holiness of God. But the good news is that <clears throat> that sin that is the barrier between us and God, that sin has been completely removed and paid for when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And so all we've got to do is place our faith, our belief in Jesus, and our sins are completely uh, atoned for. Uh, we are declared righteous in the sight of God. 
In church, we present the good news in the context of advertising. But, like I said, we're wired for this, and we're wired for it in a good way for the gospel. We're wired for it in a different way with advertising, and it happens every day. Back in 2007, market research discovered that an average person sees 5,000 advertisements per day. 2007, 5,000 per day in some manner, whether it's billboards, whether it's you know driving down the road, whether it's coming to church and hearing pickup trucks, whether it's the internet. The internet is amazingly seductive. And of course, I use this for my business, so I'm not really <laughs> one to talk about it, but Facebook is like my number one place to go to get people to invite them to come to the Bible lands. And many people are interested that way. But it's very subtle. Like this week, I was looking at a hat, a particular brand of a hat, and I don't remember where I was looking at it. Maybe it was on their particular website. But then I go to like Amazon or I go to somewhere else and there's the ad for the very hat I was looking for. So it, it takes it takes, you know, you go to a website and it takes a little what they call a cookie and sticks it in your in your computer and now everywhere you go, your that hat follows you around. And I just want to say I've already bought it. I was looking at it for a friend. Send this to my friend. I already have that hat. So, marketing works except when it doesn't. But we're constantly, that was 2007. Today, that has doubled to 10,000. Now, I double-checked this because that sounded ridiculous. But this is the average, which means some people hear more. Obviously, some people see more, some people see less. 10,000 per day. We are constantly barraged with messages that say, you lack something, we can fill that need. That's how marketing works. And it works. The challenge, of course, is that it's almost an alternative form of salvation. When we think about it, that the gospel is the ultimate marketing for good reasons, for good motives, but in the sense of our advertising in our culture as well, it is almost an alternative form of salvation. This product will save you from your grief and your problems. Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Well, let's turn together to 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings 21. I was noticing in the service today, some people read their Bibles on their phones, some people read their Bibles in their Bibles, and some people don't bring their Bibles, and I don't begin to judge you at all for that, but I encourage you to bring your Bible to class, whether it's through your device or whether it's through your actual Bible, because there's, there's, uh, there's so much more that's perceived, not only by hearing, but also by seeing, and in a sense, also by feeling, and then the tactile sense of having a pencil and jotting a note or adding something in your Bible or underlining something in your Bible. The more you can add to the mix of the whole experience, the more you're going to take home and ultimately apply in your life. Well, we are continuing our series where we're looking at just uh, some hand-picked kings from the books of Kings and Chronicles. And here in 1 Kings 21, we're looking at Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, we can almost call her King Jezebel, as we're going to see here. But uh, 
They are synonymous with corruption and power, with power and corruption. Ahab, the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, married Jezebel, who was the daughter of a Phoenician king. And Jezebel was, she brought her pagan worship of the god Baal into the northern kingdom of Israel, and Jezebel did all she could to wipe out the worship of Yahweh, the worship of the true God in the northern kingdom, and her husband just went, went right along with the program. If it wasn't for godly prophets like Elijah, who, uh, remember Elijah had his showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and Ahab was standing there and watched the whole deal, and then shortly after that, that was in chapter 18, shortly after that we read here and now in chapter 21 where this takes place. So 1 Kings 21, look right in verse 1. Now it came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it as a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house, and I will give you a better vineyard in its place, if you like, I will give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab came into his house, sullen and vexed, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him, for he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and ate no food. It's like a little five-year-old, isn't it? I mean, we need to send Emily and Owen to go take care of poor little Ahab. He's pouting because he didn't get his way. Well, there's a lot going on here. In the verse 1, first of all, we're introduced to Naboth. Naboth is this man who lives in Jezreel. Jezreel is a uh, town, a city that uh, the valley of Jezreel was named after. It really watched over the entrance of that valley. If you've ever been to Israel, you may have actually been to Jezreel. Jezreel is, um, honestly, it's not gone to that much, but it's such a strategic and historical place. When you stand there, you can see the whole valley below you. It's a valley that leads into the Jezreel Valley. It's called the Harod Valley. It's where, uh, same valley where uh, Gideon, chose his 300 you know, men. It's the same valley that you, if you look off to the right, or at least from my perspective, if you look off to the right, you can see Mount Gilboa where King Saul died. If you look right across the valley, you can see the Hill of Moreh where uh, Elisha raised the, uh, the widow's, I mean the, the Shunammite's uh, son. And then around the other side of the Hill of Moreh where Jesus raised the widow's son at Nain. I mean, it's full of history all right there at your feet. And of course, it, is, it was the capital, or I should say the, um, the winter palace, it would be a better way to say it, of Ahab in Samaria, Jezreel. And it had this man also named Naboth who had this vineyard, and just so happened that Naboth's family, through generations and generations and generations, would pass on, the property would pass within the family, he, it ended up being right beside the palace of the king of Israel. And so, because that's so, Ahab looked and saw it was a great place. He said, wow, this would be a great place to have a vegetable garden, and offered to basically buy 
or trade with Naboth. And of course, Naboth says, no, I don't want to do that. I can't do that because that would be against God's law. God's law, the Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. You couldn't pay me enough to give you this land. It's worth much more than money. So Ahab tries to motivate Naboth the same way he himself is motivated. How is, how is Ahab motivated? By property and by money. He tries to get Naboth to have that same motivation. Naboth says, no, I won't do it. For him, it was not a financial transaction. It was a spiritual decision. So Ahab pouts like the five-year-old, and, and uh, of course, we're going to see his wife comes in and is about to take care of business. I heard a parable of two friends who were walking down the road, friends who were all, always sort of trying to one-up on each other, and not one-up on the sense of a joke, but one-up like serious, like, I've got to have it better than you. So again, this is a parable. So they're walking down the road, bottle there on the ground, open the bottle, out comes a genie. The genie says, um, I'm, I'll give one of you, whichever one of you first gives me, tells me what he wants or what your wish is, I'll give the first one that says it anything you want, but I'm going to give the other person double. So, an hour goes by, <laughs> two hours go by, and, and finally one of the guys, the more greedier of the two, says, hey, I can't stand this anymore, tell the genie what you want. <laughs> and the, the guy says, all right, I'll tell him what I want. I want to be blind in one eye. You see, greed doesn't always go the way you want it to go. And this gives us sort of a first um, principle that we can get from the text. We see it really from Ahab's life, not necessarily from my little parable there. But we see it from Ahab's life. And here's the first principle, that greed blinds us to God's blessings with the false need for more. Bl greed blinds us to God's blessings with the false need need for more. You got plenty, Ahab. You could go anywhere. You got servants that can bring stuff. You don't have to have a vegetable garden right beside you. This is this man's property, plus it goes against the law of God. But greed blinded Ahab to God's blessings with the false need for more. Greed and its cousin will do this. The text doesn't tell us this, but Ahab also had a palace in Samaria. That was his capital as well as his summer palace here in Jezreel. He was the king of the nation, he was, he was rich, but he had to have Naboth's land because it was close. It was close. I was in an airport recently and I saw this huge poster with the photo of, I mean, it was just like this gorgeous beach. I don't know if it was the Bahamas or, you know, Bora Bora or something, but it was beautiful. And then underneath it, it said something like, um, indulge yourself you deserve it. And I just thought, you know, what you're telling me is I deserve to give you money. That's what you're advertising. And that's what ads do, don't they? It's always like, hey, we're here for you. No, you're not. You're there for you. 
And not that it's all bad, not that it's all bad, but I just thought, you know, that, that's, that's pretty slick, that poster. I almost wanted to tear it down and bring it to class, but uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't do it. But it appeals to our pride. Marketing does that. It tells us we deserve a break today. The reality is, no, we deserve hell. But in God's grace, he gives us so much more. Greed blinds us to God's blessings with the false need for more. Fifty years ago, the typical supermarket had 9,000 products in it. Fifty years ago, 9,000 products. Today, we have more than 39,000 products in our average supermarket. Twenty years ago, the average American went to the mall three times a month and spent 60 bucks Today, it's double that, meaning we spend uh, 150 bucks. Not, uh, not that we go six times a month. Who knows how many times we go. And uh, also, I checked on this as well this week, the average credit card, the average household carries more than $6,000 in credit card debt. So we are a people that want it now. We are a people that want it now. And sometimes we just keep telling ourselves, if I just have a little more, I'll be satisfied. Marketing tells us this, by the way, too. And the reality, it's, it's not true. It's like um, eating a bag of potato chips. You know, you have, I'll just have a couple. You ever tried just have a couple of potato chips? It doesn't work. It's rigged so that you will eat, you know, if it's, you'll eat the whole bag. Uh, or half a bag. Unless it's low-fat chips, then you can eat the whole bag. <laughs> we are wired to have more and more. Just a little more money. Just a little more square footage. Just a little more popularity. A little more education. A little more Bible knowledge. Just this vacation, and I will be satisfied. Now, listen to what Solomon wrote. Solomon said, uh, this is Ecclesiastes 4.4. 4. He said, I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. In so many words, Solomon says, you can't keep up with the Joneses because the Joneses have Joneses. It doesn't work. So looking back now at Ahab, who's pouting in the corner, you know who walks in. Verse 5, But Jezebel his wife came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food? So he said to her, and you don't want to sound too pouty here, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, and he said to him, Give, give me your wine press for money, or else if it pleases you, I'll, I'll give you a vineyard in his place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel his wife said to him, Oh, you can hear the tone in this. Said, said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Jezebel appeals to his pride as a man and to his power as a king. Aren't you the king? You can do anything you want to do. That's what she means. Cheer up. Eat. eat. And note she says here in verse 7. <laughs> I love this. Notice the pronouns. Do you reign over Israel? 
I will give you the vineyard. You reign, I will give it to you. Ahab was the king, but she ran the show. She forged letters in his name and sealed it with his seal and told the officials to proclaim that Naboth had cursed God and the king to stone Naboth to death. In 1964, there was a small stone seal that was found in Israel and donated to the Israel Museum, and it promptly sat there until the year 2000. In the 2000s, a Hebrew scholar took a closer look at it and recognized it as the official seal of Jezebel. In other words, Jezebel could do business in her own name. She had her own seal. You can go to the Israel Museum today and see the seal of Jezebel. She could do it in her own name, but for the foul deed of killing Naboth, she used her husband's name. She used her husband's name, his power, his influence, and got what she wanted. Well, Verse 11 through 13, we won't read it, but they carry out the plan just as she suggested. Now, verse 14. Then they sent word to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. So Jezebel's almost like, look, it's his fault. You tried. You know, he's going to say no to the king. Look, this is what happens. Well, here's the second principle. And honestly, before, honestly, before I give you the principle, let me just tell you, this is uncomfortable to look at. It's uncomfortable for me to look at this text because it's real easy to look at Jezebel, oh, that wicked woman, at Ahab, oh, that wicked king, and to just sort of set them over there on the wicked shelf without putting ourselves in their position. Because we'll do this at times. Oh, I don't mean that we have people killed, but I mean we will, we will murder a reputation We'll do whatever we want to do to get what we want to have, even if it's wrong. For the sake of a few vegetables close to his palace, Ahab is willing to kill a man. Here's the principle. Greed makes us willing to compromise God's word in order to get what we want. Greed makes us willing to compromise God's word in order to get what we want. Did you know that 18% of Americans, maybe we could say it this way, if we're typical, 18% of us in this class believe it's not wrong to cheat a little on taxes since the government spends too much anyway? 18% of Americans believe that. It's okay to cheat a little bit on our taxes because the government cheats in a big way. My favorite story about Mark Twain is the time that he had an argument with a Mormon over the, t the topic of polygamy. Mark Twain was saying, polygamy is nuts, and I can prove it from the Bible. And the Mormon said, oh yeah, prove it from the Bible, because the Mormon had all these verses showing that you know, polygamy was very much part of the Bible. And Mark Twain says, yeah, I can prove it from the Bible. From the lips of Jesus, no man can serve two masters. <laughs> 
That's pretty clever, isn't it? Of course, what Jesus was talking about was money, not marriage. You cannot serve both God and money. Well, Mark Twain elsewhere wrote something else that is a little more serious. He said, what is the chief end of man to get rich? In what way? Dishonestly, if we can. Honestly, if we must. Who is God? The one and only true God? Money is God. Now, I don't know that this, is, this isn't suggesting Twain believed that. He's saying this is his observation. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a convenience store buying a cup of coffee, and the guy in front of me was buying up lottery tickets using his credit card to do so. I just thought that is, that is amazing. I mean, you got, you got this on top of that. But anyway, so he, he got his stack of lottery tickets and left, and I put my coffee on the counter, and the teller said, would you like to buy a lottery ticket? I said, no, I, I want to buy my coffee. You know, we looked, I looked this morning to see what the current total is on the Mega Millions jackpot. Have you seen that? You probably have if you've, if you've been breathing. It's over like a billion dollars now. So. Oh, has someone won it? Okay, it was you? Well, congratulations. <laughs> Don't forget to tithe, sister. Well, I'm sure there's exceptions, but I was really saddened uh, as I also looked to see what the, uh, the total was for the mega, what do they call it, mega millions jackpot, the, uh, the terrible stories of so many people that have struck it rich and that it has literally created their lives. When Kathy and I went to Alaska years ago, we went to this museum that uh, featured the gold rush and the Klondike and all this. and. She actually took a photo of, I wish I'd brought the photo, but she took a photo of a chart that showed this many people went, you know, to Alaska to get rich. This many people, you know, actually made money. This many people, and it ended up being like out of, I don't know, 100,000 people that, that did the gold rush, there were like maybe 100 that actually made money. And then out of that, it was like this pitiful amount of people that actually kept their money. Out of thousands and thousands, you've got this minuscule amount. And that's just like the lottery today. It's just money Money just magnifies who you are. It doesn't necessarily benefit your life. It, it's like what Christ said when he said, He who is faithful in a very little thing will be faithful also in much. He who is unfaithful in a very little thing will be faithful also, unfaithful also in much. Um, personal compromise is never worth the damage that it does to your life. Which brings us to verse 17. Look at verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. 
Now, we won't read it for the sake of time, but in the very next chapter, Ahab goes into battle, disguises himself, <laughs> which is so funny. He tells the other king, tells Jehoshaphat, you wear your, your royal robes, I'll disguise myself. It's like, what's Jehoshaphat thinking? Sure, I'll, I'll do that. No. Anyway, it didn't matter, did it? Ahab went into battle, and somehow, in the providence of God, an arrow found the chink. It says at random, it found the chink in the armor and got him. Got him. And they brought him back, and his blood was in his chariot. They washed out the chariot, and the dogs licked up the blood, just like Elijah said. We also won't read it but uh, in 2 Kings 9, but we can look at the prediction here. Look down at verse 23. 23 says, Of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. So Ahab just gets his blood licked up. Jezebel, the dogs get to eat her. And we won't read it, but 2 Kings 9 talks about this. If you want good bedtime reading for your children, turn to 2 Kings 9 and read about when Jehu, the new king of Israel, comes racing, racing like a madman down, the, down that high road valley. In fact, if you're standing on Jezreel, you can look off in this particular direction and you can see the valley that Jehu came racing down toward Jezreel. They say, I see somebody coming. He's racing like a, like a madman. It must be Jehu. Jehu comes and he ultimately tells, uh, asks, is anybody there with me? A couple of people kind of say, well, me? Throw her down, threw her down, she dies, and the, the, she's trampled with the horses, and the dogs eat her up. In fact, all that's left is the skull, her skull and the palms of her hands. Skull and the palms of her hands. Well, look down at verse 25 at this summary verse. We read, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. He sold himself. That's what greed does for you. You sell yourself. You sell yourself for money, for recognition, for pride, for stuff. And ladies, take note. I know there's not a Jezebel in this room, but potentially at heart, we all have that influence. And ladies, you've got influence over the men in your lives, whether it's a husband, whether it's a son, whether it's any other man that has your ear. They will listen to you. Influence them for Christ. Influence them for good. Jezebel didn't do that. And we're told Ahab sold himself to do evil because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. We've got scores of lessons throughout the, the Bible. Solomon's wives, of course, were his undoing. Not the women themselves, but they, these foreign women that he married brought along foreign gods. God's not against mixed marriages. He is against mixed religions. And often, Multiple races bring different religions. In the Old Testament, that's the way it was. Today, not necessarily so. But you've got to be careful who you're marrying or who you are signing an agreement with or being yoked together with, as Paul writes to the Corinthians. To not be unequally yoked is the idea of having a bond or a covenant with someone that's going to affect your spiritual life in a negative way. 
Jezebel was definitely that for Ahab. Solomon's wives were definitely that for him. And it was their undoing because we are influenced by those we're around, especially a spouse. Now, think of it on the positive sense. You remember what Abigail told David. You know, she's sort of the pre-wife at this, at this time. But David had just thumped his chest and said, we're going to go kill everybody in Nabal's house. And Abigail intervenes and says, you know, you really don't want to do that because you're going to start your reign with a blight on your reputation. And David says, you know what, you're right. She was a voice of good in David. And David listened to her. We men listen to our women. So please give us good advice. We need it. Especially you, Clyde. You need it. So Suzanne, good luck to you, sister. Well, let's leave Ahab and Jezebel and turn to Jesus. Look at Luke chapter 17, and let's conclude with a wonderful application from Christ. Luke 17. Actually, we don't leave. We leave First uh, Kings, but we don't leave the area. This is exactly the same area geographically, which is why I like to make this connection, because it's a wonderful contrast, and the geography is the glue. I once heard Howard Hendricks said that he bumped into an attorney friend of his who was regarded as one of the top five corporate lawyers in America, and the guy was just walking on the street, and Hendricks says, what are you doing? And just walking on the street, and, and the lawyer said, well, to be honest with you, I'm looking for a job. Hendricks said, you've got to be kidding. You're looking for a job? And he said, yeah. I went, last week, I walked out of the front door of that corporation. I said, you guys can hang it on your beak. I'm not working here anymore. I'm not going to write uh, what, what do you say? Contracts that you and I are both know are illegal and illegitimate. So he says, I'm done. And he walked out. That's a great example where the potential for, where greed's potential could take you down the wrong road. This particular Christian lawyer said, I'm not going to do it. Luke 17, look down at verse 11. Luke 17, verse 11. We read, while he, while Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. So stop right there for a second. Let's just get our geographical bearings. The border between Samaria and Galilee, in fact, you might even have in your marginal reading, it says through the middle of, literally, or along the borders of. So he's traveling on the border. The borderline between Samaria and Galilee was the Harod Valley the very same valley where Tel Jezreel looked. And you can stand there and say, that valley right over there is Galilee. Where I'm standing behind me is Samaria. And Jesus walked right through that valley. So you can stand there and see exactly where this took place. So that's verse 11. Verse 12, as he entered a village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? 
Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Well, this passage should be a sermon, could be a sermon in and of itself, but there's wonderful, wonderful, simple truths in this. As Jesus is walking right there in the same valley, I mean, he could have, as he was walking, look up to the right and said, Hey, fellas, look up there. That's Tel Jezreel, where Ahab and greedy Jezebel took Naboth's vineyard. And then only moments later, this Samaritan, this foreigner, comes and gives thanks. What's the opposite of greed? It's gratitude. The opposite of greed is gratitude. And right here in this same geographical context, we've got an example of two, both of these. We've got the example of Ahab and Jezebel that greed reigned over Israel. And we've got the example of this simple, leprous foreigner that Jesus healed who came and gave thanks who came and gave thanks to Christ. In the same valley of greed was also the valley of gratitude. And Jesus' question, we're not ten healed. What's the implication there? They should have all come back, right? They should have all come back. Not, not just this foreigner. You know, the implication is the other nine were Jews and should have, they should have known to come back. But instead, the Samaritan is the one that comes back and gives thanks. And Jesus' question, but the nine, where are they? That's actually a little long in the original language. It says, but the nine, where? That's originally what Jesus says. It's just like, where? Where are they? They should be here. Well, here's the final principle. Greed will lessen its grip when gratitude fills our hearts. Greed will lessen its grip. At first, I wrote loosen, but then I thought, you know what? That's not right. It doesn't loosen its grip. It stays with us, but it lessens its grip in the sense that we can lessen its influence on us even though we're always going to struggle with it. It never lets go of us in the sense of loosening, but it lessens its grip when gratitude fills our hearts. Paul wrote to the Philippians that he had learned the secret of contentment. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He said, I know how to abound with a little. I know how to abound in prosperity. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And then there's that wonderful passage. I think we mentioned it last week in in the same book, Philippians, where he says, do not be anxious about anything, but with everything, by prayer and petition, With thanksgiving, present your request to God. You could just take that part of it. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. You mean, God, I want something, and yet I'm already supposed to thank you? Yes. Yes. Because greed lessens its grip when gratitude fills our hearts. That doesn't mean we can't ask God for something. That doesn't mean we don't have legitimate needs. That doesn't mean we can't pack up and take a great vacation someplace and spend a lot of money. But greed lessens its grip when gratitude. Gratitude better be on that vacation too. Gratitude needs to be our daily mindset. Those of us who have been healed by Jesus Christ, the natural response is gratitude. And Jesus expected it. The nine, where are they? It's so easy to just take and eat and let the hand go right back out, isn't it? As opposed to giving thanks in between. 
Um, it's a discipline we cultivate. I remember when I went to Russia for the very first time on a mission trip and came back to my house. And we live in a different house now that's bigger than the house I lived in back then. Back then, I think our house was like, I don't know, 1,200 square feet. It was a small house, our, our first house as a family. And uh, I remember at many times thinking, good grief, this is small. And then I went to Russia. And I came back and drove, and I drove in our neighborhood, the neighborhood that I thought, this is too small. And I came back, and I literally, the words came out of my mouth, and I said, I am rich. Because that perspective, I just looked around and realized, I am rich. Because I just got back from a country where people don't have all this. They don't have lawns, you know, lawnmowers. They're looking for food. They're looking for health services, simple things. They're looking for a house that isn't drafty. I had all of those, plus many other things. I am rich, and you are rich. Gratitude fills our hearts. Oh, and then by the way, we're also saved. We have Jesus. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We have so many reasons to be grateful. Listen to what James asks us. This is a very penetrating question. James 4, 1 to 3 says this, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. This is why sometimes even God's amazing blessings aren't enough for us. Sometimes even God doesn't satisfy our needs because we define our needs by our greeds. When we define our lusts, our needs by our lust or our selfish desires, our needs will never be satisfied, not even by God, because they're always, always got the next hand out. Our desires are always bigger than God's apparent ability to provide. Ahab and Jezebel, their greed, their discontent, their abuse of power is everything we hate about the world. But we find the same potential in our own hearts, don't we? If we don't check it, and we check it, by gratitude, by making sure that gratitude is a daily part of our hearts. Um, I think of that poster I saw in the airport, Bora Bora. It, it, it almost should have just said, Mora Mora, you know? That's what I need, just Mora Mora. A little Mora, a little Mora. The book of Romans tells us this in chapter 1. It says, uh, verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. They knew God, but they didn't honor him as God or give thanks. We know God. We honor him as God. But we also need to give thanks. The longer we live, the more we realize that gratitude to God, rooted in what he's done for us in Jesus Christ, is inseparably bound to the life that we want to live. 
gratitude helps us lessen greed's grip on us. Let's pray. Father, in our fallen nature, we are greedy people all. We are born selfish and screaming, and we, we live most of our lives struggling against that inclination. We want for us. Thank you that you have met our ultimate need, our greatest need, and that is forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Thank you for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Thank you for the blessing of living, honestly, in a culture that is filthy rich, that we have so so many of our mere needs met, and even beyond that, to wants and pleasures. We thank you. Thank you also for the privilege, all of its weaknesses notwithstanding, of being in a country that allows us still a measure of freedom in sharing the gospel, of preaching the word, of, of having a Bible out in public, of being able to talk about Jesus Christ without fear of uh, being incarcerated or even killed. This was not always so with the church. But for this season in America, it is for the church. And we don't know, Lord, but that season may be coming to a close. For now, we thank you and we're grateful. And we pray that our lives would be lives that would be, not be characterized by greed and this constant um, hearing the call of marketing to get us to buy by that that our contentment is in stuff and not in you. You are our God, not money. Money is a tool by which we serve you. It is not our goal. It is not our ultimate end. But our culture is never going to tell us that, Lord. So thank you for your word that gives us the reminder today. Thank you for the body of Christ that gives us the support for the encouragement of the scriptures that realigns our heart to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And all these things will be added to us as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. I hope you all have a blessed week. Until next Sunday, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.